You're listening to Women Leading Prevention Science, where we host candid conversations with some of the most accomplished women in the prevention science field. Each episode features a conversation with two female researchers who will discuss the public health problems they're trying to solve through their work and tell the stories of their journeys into the field. I'm Sarah Hairgrove, a public health analyst at RTI International. I began working in substance use prevention research after graduating from The Ohio State University in 2020, and I'll be starting graduate school this fall at the University of Maryland to obtain my master's in public health and health equity. As I move through my early years as a prevention scientist, it's an honor to speak with these inspiring female leaders in the field. This podcast was developed as part of the Heal Prevention Cooperative, funded through the NIH Helping to End Addiction Long-Term Initiative, an aggressive effort to speed scientific solutions to curb the national opioid public health crisis. The Hill Prevention Cooperative includes 10 research projects throughout the country and one coordinating center based at RTI International in the Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Maureen Walton, Professor and Associate Chair for Research and Research Faculty Development in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Michigan, and Dr. Elizabeth D'Amico, a Senior Behavioral Scientist at the RAND Corporation and a licensed clinical psychologist. We'll be discussing the unique experiences that led them to prevention science, as well as the influence of mentors on their career and the opportunities they've had to serve as mentors to others. Let's get started. Maureen, could you provide a brief overview of your current work in prevention science? Thank you, Sarah. I'm happy to be here today to talk about um, the work we're doing with um, opioid prevention at the University of Michigan. So the reason we're excited about our setting, which is the emergency department, is because about one in uh, five um, adolescents or one in three young adults has used an opioid in the last year. And so there's a variety of factors that place them at risk just because they've used for future misuse of these substances. And so in our study, we're really focused on um, people who have had op an opioid before and also have risk factors such as um, mental health concerns or have other substance use, like binge drinking or marijuana use, other prescription drug misuse. And so this is a really nice opportunity for prevention in this setting where we can initiate behavioral interventions to uh, help empower these young people to make uh, healthy decisions for their lives to prevent serious consequences such as overdose. Thanks, Maureen. How about you, Liz? What are you currently working on? So Takuna, which is Traditions and Connections for Urban Native Americans, focuses on emerging adults ages 18 to 25 and is focused on discussing these substance issues and also um, providing resources, including cultural activities, such as um, learning about cultural identity, Native cooking, and um, prayer and sage ceremony. This is a project with RAND and UCLA, and my co-PI is Dr. Daniel Dickerson, who's a Native American addiction psychiatrist. And we are working with American Indian and Alaska Native communities who to date have the second highest overdose rates from all opioids. And overdose rates among urban dwelling Native communities are one and a half times higher than in other communities. And so there's a lot of risk factors, including historical trauma, um, some of the 
social and geographical fragmentation that happen due to government policies and a lot of limited opportunities for cultural involvement. And to date, there's really no evidence-based culturally tailored prevention programs to address alcohol and drug use, including opioids. Prevention research is a broad field and there are no straight or defined pathways. Liz and Maureen had similar starting points in animal lab work. It's interesting that we both started in more basic science and then eventually moved more into prevention. I started doing uh, research with um, in Alice Young's lab, um, doing behavioral pharmacology work. So I've always worked with substance use. It's just um, developing new medications. And actually the medication that we were testing at that time is now approved for use, which is buprenorphine which is interesting. I felt like it was very much upstream from having an impact on people's daily lives. And so I found that um, after that experience, I really wanted to focus more with humans and doing work that was sort of more immediately uh, impactful in a shorter timeline is, is how sort of how I ended up with prevention. And I started working with Dr. George Koob many years ago when I was an undergrad who you know, is, is one of the leaders in the field in understanding addiction around all, all kinds of substances. I learned so much about how these things happen in the brain. And it really interested me because there's also, as Maureen said, these other social aspects. And I wanted to learn more kind of like Maureen about how to help people around these choices that they make, whether or not to use substances. And particularly, I was interested in a younger population when a lot of these choices get made and can affect people's lives years later. So that's how I kind of got into prevention because I think you know starting early is really important. And then that's what really got me interested in trying to work with adolescents and emerging adults where hopefully we can help people think about some of the choices they're making around substances before they head down a path where they're going to have really severe consequences. Thinking about your non-traditional path to prevention research, was there a pivotal moment that stands out as a moment you realized prevention science was the field you wanted to focus on? You know, I think it was a constellation of moments. I, I was fortunate, um, you know, I'm a, trained as a community psychologist and in my, um, but I also have a background as a, I have a master's in public health. And so I had a lot of prevention focused um, projects that I was able to work on, including both a substance use and non-substance use related projects. And so I think um, some factors that contributed is when I, I worked in the field in the late um, 80s in my master's in public health, which is around the time that um, HIV prevention was sort of emerging as a field because it be, was becoming a, a rapidly increasing public health problem. And so, you know, having that experience really focused um, me on interested in prevention and the effect that could have um, on people. And you combine that with, you know, when I was um, at Michigan State in my PhD program in community psych, I had the opportunity to work for our state government, actually, in the health education, the Department of Health Education. And we, um, I worked with the health education programs in the state of Michigan, which were delivered in the schools. And so, you know, having those broad experiences combined with um, addiction, you know, treatment and, and hearing people's stories, as well as mental health treatment and, and really being in um, institutional uh, settings where people were in uh, mental health care for a long, long time, years and years and years. And so seeing all of those experiences sort of, I would say, coalesced in wanting to um, 
deliver prevention because I felt like if we could develop evidence-based strategies, we could really prevent these sort of more serious mental health and um, addiction and physical health problems that people experience. You know, there's a lot of things that sort of build up that get you interested. I think, you know, as I mentioned, working with Dr. Kube and learning about addiction. And then I also did a lot of my clinical work in treatment centers with adolescents and just thinking through how do we, how do we get to people earlier before they are down this path where it's really hard, really hard to change. And, um, and I think for me, I just always loved working with teens. I think they're just so smart and so creative. And at this point in their lives, when they have all these choices to make, and I think when we can take the time as clinicians to really listen and really engage them, I think that is a, a great way to get them to think through the choices they're making. How do you think taking a non-traditional path to prevention science has impacted your perspective on the field? I think it's kind of cool because you have this important perspective. I mean, for me, I learned so much about the brain and, um, and the importance of what happens in our brain. And I think that led me to also really wanna work with adolescents as their brains are still developing. And that means we have to think about how we do our interventions and how we talk with people and how we help people think about their choices. I think definitely when you're trained in laboratory methods that it might, it, it you really learn rigor of science and clinical trials. And um, I think that's really beneficial. Mentoring has been an extremely useful asset for me here at RTI, and it's helped me as I'm developing my career path by exposing me to new areas and methods of research I couldn't have come by on my own. I wanted to know more about the people that impacted and influenced Maureen and Liz. Liz recalls several important mentors. I don't know if I can pick one person. Um, there's really three people, I think, that have influenced my life. The first I brought up earlier was Dr. George Koob, who now heads NIAAA and kind of got me interested in understanding addiction when I was an undergraduate. And then um, I did an awesome job on my honors thesis. So he offered me a job <laughs> after college at Scripps Research Institute. And from there, I went to work with Dr. Kim Frommy, who's done a lot of work with prevention, um, focusing with college students. And um, on my internship, I had the opportunity to go to Brown and work with Dr. Peter Monti who was doing work then with motivational interviewing with adolescents who had come into the ER with an alcohol-related injury. And so I think all three of those people um, really influenced me, and I'm still really involved. All of them still, you know, take my phone calls, take my emails, um, help me think about choices and career. And I guess it's just so important um, and also taught me how to be a mentor as well. And I think that um, they've really influenced me in how to, you know, help other people think about their career path, junior people, full people, graduate students. Um, so I feel really grateful that I had them in my life. I've been very lucky to have multiple mentors um, throughout my career. Uh, the two that sort of come to mind, I'll mention, um, was my postdoctoral uh, fellowship mentor, which is Fred Blow who's done work um, in prevention uh, and early intervention um, for his entire career. And I think um, having a mentor really invested in you and training you in um, 
uh, science and intervention delivery and um, grant writing and giving you opportunities to be on papers and, and things like that is, is really critical. Um, I also had another mentor, Chris Berry, uh, who we collaborated with. It was also nice to have her as a mentor um, because um, as a woman and as a woman in prevention science, uh, she could also mentor me on sort of navigating the field, especially as a um, at the time I was growing in my career, I had young children. And so it was really important to have peer mentors. So it's something I talk with my, um, I have the good fortune of mentoring early career faculty and postdocs. Uh, and one thing I always say to them is it's really important to think just not about your your senior mentors, but your peer mentors. And so I, I feel like I want to men mention a peer mentor of mine, which, which is Steve Chermack. And he and I were postdocs around the same time. And I think those sort of collaborative relationships that you develop with your colleagues who you can bounce ideas off of that maybe you feel shy or... Um, you sort of don't have confidence yet to, to share those things with um, maybe your your more senior mentors. I think it's really important because those are the people who you bounce off those grant ideas and those paper ideas and, and so forth. So um, I always encourage our um, my mentees to sort of consider like a, a stepped mentorship model where they have sort of senior mentors, their peer mentors, and then all opportunities to mentor other people, whether it's undergraduates or master's level PhD students, because I think that's how you grow best, not only in your own career, but in your mentorship skills. The best part for me of, of um, being in graduate school was going to conferences and meeting other people in my field. And we would always meet up at the conferences and talk and we kept in touch about what we were doing with our dissertations and all these other things. And I think it's just a really important way, like just to see how other people are growing and have, like Maureen said, something to bounce off of and have somebody to talk to. Um, and they don't even have to be, you know, at your university. Um, and I think that's that's what's nice about the field, too, is there's just so many opportunities. Um, and the other thing I think that Maureen brought up that's really important is just giving people opportunities to be a leader, whether it's writing grants or on papers. And I feel like um, Kim Frommy was so good at that at UT. I mean, I wrote a grant for my master's thesis um, got money to do my master's thesis and she had me be the first author on it. And it was published in health psychology, which is like, you know, and it was just, wow, you know, I was a second year student and here was someone helping me do this. And I think that it really helped me in my career when I went on to be successful and, and then helps me to help others be successful because of that model. And I think that's, you know, we need to continue to give back to the community in that way. Well, and, you know, I joke to my mentees that my goal is that they'll be my boss someday. And I think I, I've said that to you before, Liz, um, because really if and that's if that's their career goal. Right. Because a good mentor doesn't mentor you in in the mentor's career goal. It mentors them in whatever their career goals are. Right. And I think um, especially as women, I think that, um, you know, it can be hard in the field sometimes just because depending on the field you're in, it might be more male dominated. And I think so giving people that confidence that you can succeed, you can be in charge in this and you can do this and kind of helping them see that pathway is is really important. I know when we last spoke, um, one of you mentioned 
the importance of having diverse mentors. And that means as a woman, also having male mentors that influence you and that um, help you in the field. You know, I think, I think mentor, the mentor qualities that the person has in the match is more important than whether they're male or female. I mean, you know, Fred Blow obviously um, uh, was a huge mentor of mine and he's a male faculty member and he was always um, extremely supportive of me and my career goals and gave me opportunities to participate in things like you said when you felt like um, a, you know, a little bit uncertain if you were ready to do it. So it's, you know, that providing that encouragement and, you know, pushing you a little bit to um, achieve the things that the mentor knows you can achieve. That's an excellent point. It's, it's really this quality of person who is excited for you to succeed. And they want, you know, and they push you a little bit out of your comfort zone. And I think that's important, like Maureen said, of just really finding ways to support people on whatever their path is. Um, that's really what is key as a mentor. Um, it's about what they want and how you can help them find success. You've both been mentoring others in the prevention field for some time now. What do you consider to be most rewarding about being a mentor? I think the most rewarding part is seeing um, someone you're mentoring achieve their goal. So when you're working with um, a, uh, a postdoc on a K um, application and they submit it and then, you know, sometimes they often will revise it and submit it again and then just see all the hard work and the uh, idea generation and the honing of the idea. And then when they actually receive that award, it's just so ex um, rewarding, I guess, to see their success for all of their hard work. I think the other thing that um, is really rewarding about being a mentor is, of course, it's altruistic and we want to be generative. You know, there's also a piece of it where you learn a lot. I learned so much from the people that I am mentoring because they are coming through school and learning all of these um, really innovative and cool techniques. And they, you know, often there'll be new theories and thinking about things in new ways. And that's really exciting as well to learn new things throughout your career. I like what you said, Maureen, is it's, it's seeing their success. Something that I found really awesome is when you see someone you've mentored, mentoring others. I feel like you have to create this um, system where we continue to give, like Maureen said, it's altruistic and we find ways to continue to help people as they come up succeed because um, that's where all the really great innovative work comes from, people coming in with their new ideas and new things. And so um, that I think is really rewarding as well. I know, Liz, you've been recognized twice as RAND's Mentor of the Year. I think... I've been fortunate at RAND to really, as Maureen said, I get to work with so many people and um, it's a really, it's a large institution. And so I have so many opportunities to work with people with lots of different backgrounds and lots of different like career paths. I, I think, I mean, I feel honored to be recognized that people felt that, you know, that what I thought I was trying to do was helpful for them and that they nominated me and let me, you know, be recognized for that. But for me, it's something that I really truly enjoy. Um, and it's fun. You get to hear people's different ideas and help them think of ways to succeed. So 
I just really like being a mentor. It's just a big part of what I do at RAND. And I feel like it's not surprising at all that you've been nominated and, and won that award twice, just knowing you and, and how um, you're really um, uh, sort of committed to um, not imposing your views on other people. It's so consistent with your motivational interviewing um, training and practice because you're really uh, focused on um, empowering and helping people to do what they want to do to reach their goals, to hone their ideas. And so it makes perfect sense knowing you. I would have loved you to be my mentor at some point in my career. We've talked about all of the wonderful parts of mentorship. Um, what do you all find to be some of the more challenging aspects about mentoring others? You know, the first thing that comes to mind is time. You know, I, there's never enough hours in the day. And so uh, I think finding time to mentorship to, to provide mentorship to people uh, is is probably the biggest challenge. Um, and so we always try to, um, in Michigan, we always try to provide like a mentorship team because that way there's never one person that should be a barrier to a mentee because we don't want mentees to be waiting for feedback and not be able to get a paper submitted or uh, grant feedback in a timely fashion. And so really managing um, that time and uh, making sure people have what they need when they need it, I would say is, is maybe the biggest challenge. I mean, I think that just speaks to a challenge in terms of just finding balance in trying to do all of the many things, you know, that we're asked to do as um, senior researchers you know, leading these big projects, like these amazing HEAL projects that are in the field, that are with the community. So we're in the community um, with our partners, you know, being at our universities or at RAND doing our other duties and then, you know, um, mentoring. And, and I just think, you know, it is a challenge always, you know, and then you have, you know, a real life also outside of work, hopefully. <laughs> Um, and so I think, you know, it's always important to find that balance also. How can current leaders in the prevention field encourage young women to become leaders themselves? I think we just have to provide opportunities to people. And I think you might not see that as an opportunity, perhaps. And so pointing those out, saying, you know what, you can, like, just try it, you know. Um, and I think I think that's that's what it's about is really that encouragement and like yeah you could do it. I uh, I mean 100% agree. So really having those leadership opportunities and providing those for people and encouraging people to um uh sort of uh, attend or apply or um go for those opportunities I think is is very important. And so thinking about how you can provide those opportunities at at a young uh, at an early point in someone's career. Thank you both for taking the time to speak with me today. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for Women Leading Prevention Science. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll continue to join us as we host candid conversations with some of the most accomplished women in the prevention science field. For more information on the HEAL Prevention Initiative, please visit heal.nih.gov.